Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Articulating Insight podcast, the podcast where I talk to people I find interesting throughout the internet about the foundational principles of art and what they're looking for recently in film, music, and whatever we want to talk about. Today, I talk to your cult boyfriend, or Zach, who is the, the postmodern guru and the single-handed savior of 90s pop horror on a global scale, normalizing Kevin Williamson's name in the mainstream spheres everywhere. Uh, it was actually, you know, it was great timing to have someone like Zach on this show because my own principles, and even Josh, who I had in the last episode, um, we're so focused on art as this very individual thing, focused on like the articulation of specific perspectives by singular people and how, like how we can internalize that ourselves but zach is his big thing is focusing on art as it reflects like cultural changes on this like on this massive scale and what it means t- for like art to affect life and influence these like global major events in in a way that's like i can't even consider that stuff and, and he's a uh, He's great in thinking that way. So it was really great to have this conversation with him. And I think our kind of fundamental differences in art engagement manifest in a bunch of different, but maybe the same kind of arguments about, like, children's films versus horror movies or insight to be internalized, like, on an individual scale versus film as a collaborative effort, you know, and as a way to be engaged with by, like, a mass audience. And even, like, cultural zeitgeist versus timeless truths, something we have a big conversation about. So I think what it really ends up to in the end is like what he categorizes as a generation of postmodernism versus a generation of new sincerity, which might, might be due to our age gap or, or something like that. But I, I think we go to a lot of cool places. I think this is going to be another one of those episodes, though, where we're going through really specific film reference points rather than general principles. However... We do cover a lot of ground here. Like, we go so many different places and so many different weird... I mean, you can see from the thumbnail, we go to a lot of different weird esoteric works. And Zach actually opened up my eyes to a bunch of stuff I I wasn't sure, like, that I would have a sensitivity to. Like, Kevin Williamson, obviously, and uh, Joss Whedon. Like, there is a Joss, Willie, Joss Whedon that is auteurism tangent here that is really surprising to me. I would never have thought that, and Zach gives a really impassioned perspective on it, and I was absolutely there for it. So I, I mean, that really opened my eyes, and I'd be interested in visiting maybe some of Joss's stuff in the future, who knows? So I think reflecting on the conversation overall, our earlier debate about the merits of children's films, I feel bad because I almost kind of just like cop out of it at a point and be like, I just got to think about this more. And I swear this isn't just a way to dodge the conversation. It's like, I have a realization during the conversation that it's like, we're talking about these things that are like group things by these massive committees of people and stuff. Like when we're talking about like Disney and Pixar movies. And it's like, I can't just internalize it as like, 
a singular insight about life that I that I, I can take out of it. And the way I would engage with like a single auteur film, I really got to put in thought into, into what these corporations are looking to accomplish, and um, yeah, just got to reflect on on how, how I'm going to internalize these things constructively for me. So I'm I'm still reflecting on that. It's still going to be a a big kind of a predisposition that I'm going to have to confront myself. And I'd be really interested to do that. But Zach is super open through it. We have some great back and forth about it. And we both like uh, come up with compromises about each other's perspectives in the end that I think is a, is a really great conversation. Another great conversation we have is about post-70s Francis Ford Coppola films. Something that people don't like to talk about too much. And I really like to talk about. And I really hope, I really hope I was able to prompt Zach into maybe revisiting at least and hopefully reevaluating some of those films, like One from the Heart and Rumblefish, which are just some of my favorite films ever. And hope something constructive comes out of that because I, I, I think they've been a, done a disservice in modern film uh, conversation, as it were. Um, also, just got to call it out. I wish I would have doubled down on calling out him calling Rumblefish overcomposed. And yet he's like, oh, Kubrick and Antonioni, of course they're great. But Rumblefish is overcomposed. Like, what the, what the hell are you talking about, man? <laughs> like, no, I get it. it's, a, it's a throwaway line. I, I don't know if he, he meant too much by it. Maybe he meant, like, it was a different context or something. So I'd be interested to have a conversation with him later about the Rumblefish thing and probably after he revisited it. But, yeah, if he, if he ever feels compelled, whatever. I'm not going to force him to do anything. But I what I will do is... Thank him for coming on here because this was a great conversation, a great confrontation of different perspectives, a willingness to have a dialogue about these fundamentally different things, which is not easy to do. And overall, we, I think we really do get somewhere. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And um, yeah, let, let's get right into it. If you came at me like two years ago, uh, I would have had like soliloquies. <laughs> like I'd have <laughs> lost all of my sense of reality and like a torrid monologue. Um, roller coasters of emotion, like mania, like you'd have had like a Mercutio Queen Mab speech about yeah. art. Yeah. But like right now, it's like I don't even know, and I'm not sure if I care too much. Um, mm -hmm. Like two years ago, it was like, man, art is the most important thing. Like, like art is is so important, and I had like all these theories of how like what not how one should view but how like one could view art and mm. just to make it like more exciting or maybe more personal or even more interpersonal but like now now i <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm the worst possible guest because now i i don't even care <laughs> like um but art obviously has a value but it's it's just so all encompassing. It's so difficult to like narrow it down to one thing because you know like like right now I'm on this like postmodern like like pop like trip. Not like not like the postmodern art of the French New Wave. I'm talking like postmodern art of studios from the late nineties. Like yeah. it's not it's not a huge uh, it's not a vastly sophisticated thing. But like I'm. Like I'm into the idea of um, like I'm almost over critiquing art, and I like watching art critique itself, or uh, the sincerity that could be found in that, or the complete lack uh, thereof. Or you know, I was thinking about like how to fucking answer this question because like take a movie that I don't like, you know, but you watch it with someone and you see their reaction to it. I mean, that's art, right? Art mm -hmm. is like how someone reacts to it as well. Mm -hmm. um, I used to have this whole thing. Um, I was brought up like Jewish or whatever, like just a way to like make art or film really 
probably a song probably could work for anything because I'm an obvious genius. But uh, in, in like in Kabbalah, there was a um, it's like some common Jewish saying of um, God is not static being, but rather dynamic becoming. So um, I selfishly took that and applied it to like film criticism because you know that's far more important than than you know being saved and. <laughs> And uh, for a while there, I had fun viewing it through that lens. I mean, in the end, I think that's a little selfish, but it helps you um, learn a lot more about about an art piece of uh, like I had a whole video on it. People responded pretty well to it. But looking back on it now, it's just full of like confusion and weirdness. But the whole premise of it was that like some some pieces of art grow with you as you adapt and you change while while other art we have to take into consideration like the creator the architect because they obviously had a very deliberate message but now i'm at the point where i don't care if something's deliberate or not if it did it it did it mm -hmm. you know yeah so welcome to my scattershot universe <laughs> Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's great. I, mean, I, I was thinking, like, when we were watching that video, I feel like, and especially with what you just said, I feel like we have both kind of had, like, a similar arc, or at least w what I went through with that was when I was, you know, um, what I talk about, like, in the first episode of this, and, like, I keep bringing up, is the, the notion that art is the method with which people can preserve insight and sensitivities that they've experienced as a way that other people who don't have to go through what they've went through in order to gain those things can then draw those rewards. And at first, when I started coming up with that idea, I started coming up with this idea that every work of art has to have like this definite life message. It's like people who have these life experiences have to then preserve those experiences and then suddenly every film becomes like a like a moral tale or something telling about life. And I was like, well, what, what's a film like... Um, like a Stan Brackage film or something, I don't know. Like, okay. what are those then? And I'm just like, well, what? And so I feel like, um, in a similar way, I had to kind of uh, figure out what the dynamic becoming was. In that, I think it, it still played into my earlier definition of preserving insights. But it's that insights don't have to be literal life experiences. Insights and sensitivities can be to really abstract things. Like, the way form works, the way like technicalities like editing and the like aesthetics these are things yeah. that that can you can have a developed sensitivity to like the kind of analogy i come up with in the first episode where if someone stares at trees their whole life they're gonna make a great depiction of what a tree is and it doesn't have to be that literal or anything like just the way things flow and these tones and stuff if you have a sensitivity to a certain tone or mood you can then preserve that as well so in that way it's like Art doesn't have to be like this literal singular thing. It's just a method of communication where people preserve things that they know. <laughs> it sounds yeah. so basic when I put it out like that, but you know. But that, well, that's the problem with like trying to determine what art is and that like year one philosophy discussion. But like it's fun to have these tools like static being dynamic becoming. I phased that out. Like I don't really use that. Mm. But, like I really appreciate your at least tool or method of, uh, of determining at least what makes something artful, mm -hmm. you know, of uh, literally articulating insight, but it mm -hmm. gets even more sinister, maybe even more fun when like you move away from the architect and you look at like a big studio project that is like sending out these problematic insights to people, like huge groups of people, like mm -hmm. the establishment thinks that 
uh, that this large that that everybody needs to be exposed to a very certain insight mm-hmm. and like that's also where it gets kind of interesting to parse through as well um that's why i've been so interested in the fucking like late 90s slasher and teen movies because like these are like pre-columbine movies mm-hmm. and yet every single movie is about some media obsessed white boy who wants to kill his girlfriend and all of his friends and you're like how did no one see this like <laughs> happen like how did no one know that this a predictive cinema and it's fucking weird like art could be really powerful but is there like a true there has to be a true value in that because it's interesting but mm-hmm. like yeah well no and i think the most important things to consider is that those movies tend to be a kind of amalgamation of perspectives where when you have Mm -hmm. these big collaborative groups of people working towards a movie that they want to be applicable to a wide audience of people you're gonna get just this kind of like like a zeitgeist almost or just like the way these um the kind of thoughts surrounding like a, a certain time and place will just kind of manifest in ways these people probably aren't even conscious of it's just the kind of summoning of these groupthink ideas and stuff i, I think you probably apply that to to all eras um no absolutely that's one of the most interesting things about popular art especially when we're using your like articulating insight thing because mm-hmm. of course of course um, like what they're providing is not only like insight but, st- but stuff that's undiagnosed in the like young like american teen character that should probably be treated and it's gone untreated i mean if you start a decade off in the 90s with like and i swear i don't have a gun and at the end even your films are like these kids in the faculty shooting their principal in the head like and it's framed as like a triumphant moment like yeah. it, it's not difficult to see how like culture got so apathetic and but it was being articulated through mm-hmm. the insight of these postmodernists and sometimes these studios accidentally like hire auteurs like hire fucking madmen like Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson and you end up getting this stuff that just seems so Mm -hmm. so incredible it's just um it's weird if you came at me two years ago i would not be talking about like you know the artistic benefits of the scream franchise i would be more into like the rules of the game and like talking about like antonioni and shit but that's so cool that's so cool and that's why um it was funny because i i went a few days ago and i watched through a bunch of like just random videos i found just like through looking on youtube of like your stuff and i was kind of just like I was like, oh, like, like you have you have a lot of cool ideas, but there was like some things where it's just like these are kind of just like widely held cinematic like takes, you know, like yeah. r- like we don't need another person to tell us rules of the game or the Kubrick films are a masterpiece. But then I started getting into newer videos. We're getting into like you know just disturbing behavior and all the like scream and all yes. that. And it's like this is like this is in a way this is your articulating insight. This is your specific taken to these films that like i'd never heard anyone talk about these films like that before so that's why it was so fascinating um so don't worry about that but um you know it's funny because I, I never got much into those films myself like i think the only one i've seen out of the ones you mentioned is scream um which, which is a great film but the kind of auteur i went that i feel like kind of reflects that sort of era but in a really esoteric way is richard kelly with you know donnie darko yes. and southland Tales. Yeah. And I mean, like, with Donnie Darko, you have, like, in a way, it's kind of the shift towards, like, I mean, there's obviously, like, the 9-11 imagery in it and all all this other weird, like, dissociative stuff. 
it's wild. Like, like, like you could track it down and it's almost, oh my God, that's going to sound like the darkest humor possible. Mm-hmm. But like once Columbine happened, they were like, okay, Kevin Williamson, you're out of a job. We're not doing these weird slasher movies where there's like a physical teen character who's like detached and dispossessed or something. We're not doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're going to focus on airplanes for some reason, like Final Destination and Donnie Darko. And then fucking 9-11 happens. And they're like, we can't do anything. Um <laughs> But like that is definitely a thing that happened. But Richard Kelly, I just brought him up with um, Jacob, who's another wonderful human being who mm-hmm. I do like most of these videos with. We were talking on, on Disturbing Behavior about, uh, especially how Donnie Darko is such a fascinating film because Disturbing Behavior is like Scream meets The X Files, uh, and like it's it's really dedicated to these B movie tropes, but it likes to entertain these postmodern flourishes and concepts and try to be hip and trendy. Mm-hmm. Whereas Donnie Darko is a film that like obviously like if you told me richard kelly loved disturbing behavior i'd believe you because donnie dargo is a film that like sees all of the tropes all of the genre fixtures like all of the like like uh, genre movements that mm-hmm. i believe that richard kelly desperately wants to follow but like in jacob's own words like instead he dedicates three-fourths of the runtime to these slow-mo fucking um weird music montages that like are more about expressing sensitivities than they are about uh following through on any genre promises yeah yeah uh, <laughs> fascinating fascinating guy i wish uh mm-hmm. i need to cover him eventually but richard kelly is definitely one of those and richard kelly is also an auteur that i feel like the studios reneged on immediately after southland tales and I'm like we're never doing that again you're never getting that much money mm-hmm. yeah no absolutely well like, i mean yeah um i think it's just fascinating the way um like all his films are just kind of like in a weird way like almost like these open wounds of like where they're not necessarily pop culture because those movies couldn't play to like all these people all they are like you know like cult popularity like kind of films but um they almost just feel like pop culture put through this lens of like just a dissociated outsider teen or something i don't know i I think his films are so fascinating in that way like, it's like it's definitely like a disassociated view of pop culture, especially with like the from everything from the cast to the texturing to the to the choice of music. Mm-hmm. It's like it is pop culture, but it's not like a, a pop culture that's ever been a physical reality. It's yeah. uh, it's this really cool, sensitive world. Uh, down to James Duvall, who is probably best known for being Greg Araki's like best muse, like one mm-hmm. of the most important people in queer cinema, as this dead fucking bunny rabbit or whatever. <laughs> like that has so much power, like built in already because of the yeah. built-in persona of his like physical symbolism. There, there's so much to Richard Kelly, and it's also interesting because Donnie Darko's awkwardly predictive cinema again, and then Southland Tales is a direct response to. Uh, like nine eleven, the Iraq War, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, in, in really weird ways. There's so much weird stuff going on. That but I went, I was like obsessed with Southland Hills for a long period. I just like delve into everything about it. And now I'm like, the more I read about it, the less sure I even like understood what it was getting at. It's such an esoteric, like weird thing. And that's why Richard Kelly's so fascinating because in his mind, I've started to realize. All his movies are just straightforward stories, from what I can tell. Like, all the readings people do into them are all, like, from, like, this outside thing. Like, with with him, Southland Tales, he was just interested in telling this story. But for some reason, he just works as this perfect cipher to flow all these, like, generational feelings and, like, esoteric meanings into them. No, absolutely. 
No, Richard Kelly is one of those fascinating, one of those fascinating filmmakers that, like, like here's a question for you, like, um, mm. like do you think that like Richard Kelly was deliberately trying to convey a straightforward story, and that like if he got too bogged down in his own like uh, imagination, would that be a flaw against his storytelling? I'm not sure. Because, like, in a way, objectively, yes. Because then he's not telling the story. He's focusing on other things. But to me, yeah. if he was successful at storytelling, I wouldn't care as much because of the fact that he just has this wild imagination and will stop the movie for a Killers music video or a Head Over Heels <laughs> segment. I'm so much more on board with that, you know? Oh, fuck. It's been a while since I saw Southland Tales. He just brought back glorious, pure cinema memories of that fucking I got soul, but I'm not a soldier bit holy right? shit yeah well that's the thing um if he's trying to tell stories i don't remember his stories honestly because mm -hmm. when i think of donnie darko i think of like like magnolia shades of sad people sitting around listening to it's a mad world or whatever like <laughs> yeah. i think of biking the echo and the bunny man like i don't think about time travel mm -hmm. but i think he wants me to think of time travel but i reflect <laughs> You should have made that more memorable. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and this is well, and this is a good little full circle of what we were just talking about, where it's not really this question of auteur intent or th this, that, and the other thing. It's just about um, the way how the work is in a, in itself, and in that way, Richard Kelly has made geniuses' works, even if he's not a genius in the way they capture these things. And so, I guess that's another thing that's kind of weird about my definition of art with like articulating insight where it doesn't necessarily have to be conscious on the creator's part or like a, a defined message or anything. It's more about what the work captures that's unique to these sensitivities where um, Richard Kelly's sensitivity to, to these weird little like pop culture things. Like I don't think the Killers were considered like a very arty band at the time, but in the context of Southland Tales, there is artistry in that thing that, that could be more universally accepted because of Kelly's uh, sensitivity to those things. And since he's coming right out of that postmodern 90s fucking pop wave, there's irony, too. There's so much irony to that scene and to his work. I mean, I think inserting the killers that way is more ironic than anything else. I mean, they were even seen as a more superficial Interpol. Like, they yeah. weren't... They, they were not very respected even within their own They're, they were lcd sound system for dumbasses <laughs> like, <laughs> but that scene elevates not only the original text of the song and mm -hmm. the film that it is in but like the moment the time that the time period like it's so fucking ridiculous to see this like army vet like bleeding singing this fucking <laughs> dude it, and it's justin timberlake it's justin too the place that within the context that he's still like a fucking pop star at that mm -hmm. point well yeah that's why like, oh, everything shit. in that movie um was like dwayne johnson sean william scott sarah michelle geller like not art movie stars at all not even like particularly like you know, reputable, like, stars. Those were, like, trash culture, and yet he had so much faith in those people to, to bring them forth. Absolutely, and I love the, the the way that my film criticism is going. I have brought up Sarah Michelle Gellar and Sean William Scott way more times this year than I brought up, like, fucking, I don't know, a Jean Moreau or something. Like, <laughs> way more times. Well, that's cool. That's well, where I'm at. Well, but, and that's the thing, and that's what I was talking about earlier, where it's like, um, I, I feel like that's the point where movie engagement you start to form a kind of unique sensibility where it's like 
I'm sure you could find, if you look up, you found thousands of articles talking about Jean Moreau, for good reason, yeah. obviously. But yeah, with Sarah Michelle Gellar, that's something more unique. So I think that's... Yeah, I honestly don't know what's, like, like honestly, I would much prefer a, a fucking two-hour-long Cruel Intentions breakdown than another fucking white kid who thinks that 2001 is, like, like the, the <laughs> mind-blowing movie. And I'm not even saying anything against 2001. Mm. It's just it gets boring yeah, after exactly. a while. That was the thing that actually first sold me. That I was like, oh, okay, I got to get Zach on as a guest. Because you mentioned um, in one of your videos, you were like, 2001, it's cool, it's great, I don't care. That's exactly how, how I feel about it, where it's like, um, like, I, 2001 doesn't, I'm not gonna wake up in the morning and be like, man, I'm thinking about 2001, I'm gonna wake up in the morning and think about something stupid, like, man, remember that scene in Donnie Darko or Southland Tales, like, like, stupid little movies, those are the ones that really get you when you get, like, a, a more attuned sensitivity to these things, which I think is really important. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> I, I definitely agree, um... Kubrick would just be so boring to talk about because, mm. like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, obviously, he's not. Well, seeing the thing is, the, the obviously part, right? But it reminds me of like a Hitchcock or like a mm. Wells review. Like, I don't like. I'm sure you think he's great, and mm. I'm sure he probably is. Mm. <laughs> but like, what what can we bring to the table with this apart from like self-aggrandizing, like bullshit? Like, yeah. I understand eyes wide shut better than anybody or something. <laughs> like, I don't. Yeah. Like it's great. It's fun. It's cool. I never want to talk about it. Though. Yeah. No, um, absolutely. And that's just like that just comes with like the territory. Because like I mean, I mean, you've been doing YouTube for a while. I mean, you you've been through those things. You you've you've like you've done mm -hmm. those analyses. So it's just it's just natural. I think you to get get a little jaded towards those things. At least I have a nice bedrock of, like, Tarkovsky and Renoir to build my Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Dawson's Creek mansion on top of. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh. you know, that's another thing I, I, I like talking about a lot is that um, I feel like the, the existence of a canon, like, you know, like a film canon, a music canon, is mm -hmm. important. And when people don't engage with that because they're like, you know, for example, it's just like a random example, like, they're like, I won't listen to the Beatles because... Like, everyone thinks they're the best band, and I don't think they're that great. Well, okay, but now you kind of missed out on this important cultural touchstone. Which, I mean, if you're just listening to music or watching movies or whatever as a form of escapism entertainment, that's totally fine because that's your purposes. But if you want to take a part in this cultural dialogue, to not have seen, you know, the Kubricks, or at least know about them, or the Tarkovskys, or the, you know, etc., you're going to be missing a big piece of these puzzles here because those things in yeah. some ways have seeped into our consciousness. Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, we all, I think most cinephiles start off the same way by following these inane and arbitrary lists that seem to hold so much fucking power at mm -hmm. first. And, like, you got you to gotta go to school, for lack of a better words, and, mm -hmm. you know, one watch Truffaut and watch, like, uh, I don't know, like, Fritz Long. Watch all the names that the people name drop. Watch all those names. Mm -hmm. That way you get what they mean, and some of them might change your life in the process, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, make sure you're not parroting someone else's uh, feelings about because that's even more selfish than the alternative of just gatekeeping and just championing a name because it's powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, watching your videos, I just wrote down random stuff we can maybe talk about. Um, there's one thing is that, um, in a way, I, I am really interested in the way pop art reflects 
uh, was like generational feelings at the time and, and sort of like subconsciously channels these things. But in a way, I, I, I do kind of take umbrage with talking about things in that way just because I feel like strong individual works of art by like by auteurs and stuff like that when there are people who can do those really singular things and channel things that are totally out of step with anything else I feel like that to me is what kind of drives me into art engagement and that's why um I I, I do kind of like push back in a way to, to, to using terms like um postmodern and like romantic era type stuff like that because I feel like those true artists who are out of step with whatever's going on will have works that last forever when they articulate timeless human like truths or not even human truth just truths of you know beauty human relationships all this I, I, I just feel like it's just kind of a way to to kind of um push forth what I'm usually talking about in uh even though, like, we, we've talked about all this great pop art, and I think that's a great discussion, too. I just uh, I just thought I'd bring that up, because that was something I, I thought about as a, as a way to frame those things. Um, the, well, I mean, I I would have to take umbrage with any sort of idea of a timeless truth. I mean, that's, mm. that's what postmodern art is about, destroying the very concept of. Mm. Uh, I, I, I use words like postmodernism, especially when referring to really popular movies in the 90s, because... All of a sudden, a philosophical term was a selling point on the back of a VHS tape. Like, mm. it would say hip, trendy, sexy, postmodern. And when a philosophical term enters into the public consciousness like that, even if it's being portrayed in an insincere way, it's fascinating when something, when a word like that, which seems to be all encompassing, and most of the people I'm talking about would refuse to be postmodernists, but like, mm. it's interesting when that word gets on the back of the box but postmodernism was about deconstruction or like recontextualization or uh you know um completely subverting all like cinematic hopes and truths or like socially constructed ones uh, like postmodern art is about like the absence of a universal truth or a universal trope even mm -hmm. yeah. um well may i just elaborate what i meant on about like universal truth yeah um it's like like, like, for example, like, right at the start, you, you were already using Shakespeare as a reference, you know? That is someone who I assume was fairly out of step with whatever was contemporarily going on at the theater scene in his time. And in those ways, his works have these sort of, like, what do you call it, like, like, archetypes that are real thought complexes that people develop. And, like, um, concepts about death life, joy, passion, romance, all these things in really concise, articulate ways so that they are still cultural touchstones today even though we're so far removed from that cultural context. And not even that, um, even just on an individual scale, can still inspire individuals and teach things that would still be relevant regardless of the time period to people um, be because, because of his sensitivity. So that, that's kind of what I meant by universal truths. But I, in a way, I, I do see what you're saying about like postmodern in uh in like a, like a 90s context of like deconstructing these conventions um uh, not even like a convention because that's like a i don't even mean like specifically in a narrative machination way but in terms of like people's complexes at the time you know like it, yeah. characters that manifest like the you know like the the columbine outsider um edgelord archetype you know mm -hmm. And I'm trying not to sound too like edgelord right now. No, no, that's fine. Um, I, I did like uh, I, I recently covered and like fell in love with uh, this movie called Gossip from the year 2000, and it's mm. literally about like uh, like these art kids making an art project where they invent a truth, and 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 they're 
and their rumor that they started was like that uh, turns into like a huge sexual assault thing. It's a wild, mm-hmm. wild movie, but it's one of those, I'm going to say the word postmodern movies again, mm-hmm. because like it, it plays on what the invention of truth is, or if truth has a value or if untruth even has a value or if they're of equal values. And I think cinema is more about untruths than, than truths and more about, I don't even know if, if they're, if they're very good lessons. Really, mm. um, I, I think that when you see something cinematically like that in itself is untruth because it's poised to look like nothing in real life does. Jean Renoir is an amazing quote on this. He's like, if I want to see a park, like I don't want to see a park on a film. I don't want to see a park in a film that looks like a park in real life because I just want to go to the park and live life. Mm-hmm. I want to see a cinematic park to make me go see more movies. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is a very dangerous and fucked up thing to say, mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly. Yeah. But I think that that is the, like, like a film is really fucking dangerous. Like, art can be really dangerous. Like, heightened expectations of beauty, heightened expectations of the cinematic outcomes of your life. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that, like, shit in the 90s got so fucked up and we're still way more fucked up today because we all started to view our lives in this cinematic way, waiting for that moment of, like, cinematic revelation that honestly isn't going to probably come for us. Now I sound like a doomer. but. <laughs> Listen, listen, um, like it's like oh, cinema can be really fucking dangerous um, uh, because we're not going to have that cinematic moments. Our, our lives aren't cinematic, but we want them to be. I mean, and, and like relationships can crumble under the pressure of a, of a really good kiss from the 40s. Like yeah. lesser things have ruined lives. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And you know what? That, that's a really, uh, that's a great way to put it. I remember, actually, I, I did see your video on that. And so you should have kept that in mind. But like, no, but that, that's a really exceptional way to, to look at things. And in that way, I don't think, like, I totally agree with the Renoir quote, where art shouldn't and really can't be fully reflective of reality. And that's not the purpose of art. And that's why I think art should provide a heightened version of reality or hyper-representation, reflection, whatever, um, in the sense for the manner of communication. In the way you exaggerate a story when you tell it in order to make a point, that's that's how you can kind of fit that kind of concept into the articulating insight thing. And Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think you and I can view art that way. I think like you and I and people listening to this podcast can definitely view art that way, but the normal person, I don't understand, I don't think comprehends that they're watching a heightened version of reality and they yeah. think that every girl they ever meet should look like Sarah Michelle Geller. Like yeah. I think that's a fucking terrible thing to think. And like I, w- I don't even blame them for thinking that because why wouldn't they? Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that is like such a prescient uh, concern, especially now with media overload, like with the internet, with constant exposure to all these things that has made that one of the most paramount concerns where like, you know, we got people who are just locked up in their house waiting for the movie thing to happen, waiting for the manic pixie dream girl to show up and stuff. And and that's not possible. So yeah, I think absolutely to that perspective, you, you have a total point there. Um, and I think what I was saying with, with the universal truth things and stuff like that is more that, like, here's an example that, that I default to a lot in this case. Uh, D.W. Griffith's Home Sweet Home, his second feature, has this ending that is the most inspiring thing for me ever, where the whole movie is this biopic about this one songwriter who is a piece of shit in real life. Which It's so funny that D.W. Griffith directed it too, but um, he's a piece of shit in real life. He's, like, mean to his woman or whatever. And um, then he, uh, but, but the whole movie uses the song he wrote as a framing device to show how this song has made people's lives better. People have heard this song and suddenly they've grown a better understanding of people and um, have, have improved their lives. And so then when this guy dies, 
he um it, it shows this like weird superimposed seg segment of him like crawling over these rocks trying to get to this angel and it says um for all the flaws he had in his life or something um will he not be forgiven uh in like for the art he has created or something like that and to me i feel like in a way that that's a, an integral image to me for what art is is art is trying to escape the smallness of what we are through preserving these insights that people can relate to um on a wider scale and in that way like i i don't feel like it's necessarily tied to like, like a time period and all those things and that maybe they can be gained forever in that sense i don't know <laughs> oh no no i think that's that's a fascinating like um it's fascinating reading for sure mm -hmm. and like I, I could never tell you like you're like man my third guest is telling me to burn down the movie theater like i could never tell you <laughs> that like but that's, that's uh, such an interesting like, perspective because like no cinephile is gonna be like movies can and do harm people and but like that, that <laughs> is, but it, it's a truth it is a truth there um i, I could never tell you that like don't be inspired by a movie i've been inspired by a movie mm -hmm. and um you know, many times, and I think, like, for the better, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times for the worse, too. It's yeah. just um, that inspiration. Every inspirational moment, I think, comes with an unseen cost. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a strange way to look at it. I think it's, it's mainly, like, on an individual scale, like, in how I internalize it, in terms of, like, I, I can't really speak for, for a, a broader audience, but it's, like, mm -hmm. I just have to be cognizant of the perspective of the film and what I want to internalize from it. You know, like, I have to make sure that I'm taking things that are constructive to my being and not um, something that's seductive but dis destructive, in a way. Exactly, but it's just when a film is really good, it's mm -hmm. impossible to tell the difference between them. And sometimes, like, problematic and damaging movies can be really fucking good because mm -hmm. they're so problematic and damaging. So, like, it's like I can't even add a value judgment to that, like some of the movies that like have inspired quote unquote real life atrocities are like pretty fucking good like mm -hmm. i can't say that they're not mm -hmm. uh, it's, well, it's just a circular thing again like with what is art it's like then what is the value of art and if art has you can't place a value on it obviously you can't mm -hmm. really do a value judgment but there's a negative and a positive for sure mm -hmm. well yeah and of course like and that's the thing like um in a way, we kind of got like a yin and yang here. You're saying movies are evil. I'm saying movies are good. And and the truth exists on both sides. Like, like there. No, absolutely. Yeah, there there are good impacts and there are bad impacts. Because in that way, I feel like people get really romantic notions of art when in reality it's just a a crazy heightened version of communication. Like movies yeah. are just like the steam engine version of of talking's like wedge or something. You know what I mean? Like talking's a simple exactly. machine film is like this crazy apparatus that can change the world and, and i mean to be even more like blunt about it it's mostly millionaires playing dress up and pantomiming a director's power trip or yeah. a studio like uh like there's a but the thing is i don't ever want to lose that romantic nature of a film because that's so inherent to it too mm. like uh like it goes back to that renoir quote like i, th I think he knew what he was saying was like should have been disagreeable but it was the right thing to say about you don't go to a film to see what you can see in real life but like that's what we trick ourselves into thinking when we're there mm -hmm. yeah well, uh, and then we're all doing it mm -hmm. and in a way like that's why i find the scariest types of movies to me in, in this sense are 
um, like true crime and like based on a true story movies where suddenly now people have an excuse to not view it as a heightened version like oh it really happened even when like fucking yo fargo he they said it really happened it just didn't fucking happen but i bet yeah. you so many people i mean that's what the the, the kind of modern movie can we call the treasure hunters about well there there was a woman who went searching for it and like froze to death the money buried in the snow or whatever mm -hmm. yeah like that happened like is that worth that movie i don't want to be the one to say it was but yeah. maybe well, I, like but... no that's nihilistic and weird yeah but like, and it's the responsibility of the director to to like cover every base and make sure their movie can't be misinterpreted. I mean, no, because people are gonna think what they think no matter what. You know, like, is it the Dark Knight Rises fault that some dude shot up a theater? Like, n no, because people are gonna do what they do yeah. because people are fucking crazy. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm far from nihilistic. It's just um, I, like certain things shouldn't go like completely unsaid. I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh. Like, if we're going to recognize every beautiful aspect of a film, we should recognize every ugly one, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, this conversation. <laughs> it started off with what is art, and now it's like, why should we still have it? Um, <laughs> but no, it's, it's an important question to ask. And, like, I, again, like, it's funny to contrast against um, Josh, uh, who is um, a, a guy I had on a last episode, where he... He, he's just so like I started the recording and boom he was off just going on and on about um how like like uh, the beautiful symbolism of, of Lynch movies and um how Altman can, can create these beautiful tones and portraits of humanity and all that and, and that's great but like he, he has like, again this very romantic notion of art and so it's so it's so cool to get the 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 yang here of course like, like the the other perspectives that's why um it's don't worry definitely what it. you were saying about like horror movies i find horror movies to be like the most revelatory because i do like to look at some movies as a critique of culture especially when they're huge like um it, it's one thing to make an audience laugh or like get turned on but when you scare them like you're scaring something like maybe not repressed but like subconscious you're scaring something that they don't know they don't know exactly why it's like it's frightening or at least um, um, appealing and attractive, like that. That that's when it gets so interesting. Like starting back with uh, fucking what uh, Lon Chaney and like his uh, Phantom of the Opera characters, which are like we're spitting images of uh, wounded soldiers coming home from like World War One, and like mm -hmm. they don't know why that Phantom character is just so appalling to look at. It's because it's the truth around you. Oh, universal truth, possibly. But like, it gets really interesting. Like, um, like why did vampires come back in the '80s so heavily? Well, that's because the like, in the '90s, like the AIDS epidemic was huge, and it was just these were like queer-coded characters, and they were very sexually ambiguous. And every great vampire story is actually a gay story about something wrong with our blood and how it's easily transferable, and how that lifestyle just seems so cool and like dangerous. But it's something weird that you can't really pinpoint when it's happening in horror, and that's like the one of the funnest things about it, I mean, you can kind of pinpoint it now with, like, Get Out and things like that, but mm. even then, like... But in a way, like, uh, movies like, 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 culture can't hide it, or films can't hide it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it almost feels weirder now because it's almost become, like, a double subtext where, like, Get Out... The subtext of Get Out is is not even subtext. It's like the message of the movie yes, is that it's that, about that's racism. That's where I take issue with it of, like, no, it must be something else. It can't be that that obvious. But maybe we live in a very obvious generation. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. I like I, I, I have the hardest time parsing new movies because I don't know. And I think both our base level inclinations to films are kind of at odds, which is why like this contrast perspectives is so interesting because I didn't watch a horror movie 
ever until I was like 16, 15, just because like a like I'm I'm just I'm easily scared. I'm just like a I'm just a pussy. And um, and B, it's just they never interested me. What I did watch was a shit ton of like animated and family movies because like those were things um that's more interesting me and i think that that's an interesting way in how i look at universal like true truths and art and, and you push back more on that idea is that if you look at the the total scope of like family entertainment children's movies and stuff it hasn't changed that much since like snow white and before that i mean because you're teaching kids basic fucking life lessons like like you can only go so far whereas horror is the opposite horror is geared towards adults like the opposite of children so now you're playing against I feel like, developed yeah, things you're right you're right I just feel like it's easier to have a universal truth when, like, most children's films are, like, more uniform. They're most they're mostly underneath the same, like, corporate umbrella, and the ones that aren't are trying to ape that style or that messaging. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's something I kind of got to come to terms with. But I still think that the message is there, regardless of whether they're obligatory, all this. Like... I learned yeah, more but are, from... are you willing to like uh like reduce like your universal truths down to like be nice to people because that's like ah whatever. I don't know because like <laughs> for example like just take a recent example like Pixar's Soul like which is you know still a children's movie even though kind of an elevated children's movie in a weird way I'm not entirely sure how children respond to it but regardless has fairly nuanced messages about personal passions in life to taking direction and stuff of course done by this corporate conglomerate i just can't figure out a way to fault it because i would love to hate on a disney movie because i mean disney. you can fault it very easily by saying it just adds to the infantilization of culture like most children's movies these days don't seem to be made for children i would get nothing out of soul if i was a child why would i want to go but to yet, a theater like... and watch someone die and think about my mortality like that but that's not what the film is about i would argue and also like i saw ratatouille when i was seven in theaters and it blew my mind it, it, it really opened up something about wh what artistic passion is and it, it, well i mean it probably even it carries would, down would to inside out and like wally blow your mind too though like those don't seem to be made for for children seems to be made for children who never grew up but i don't know like i was like eight when i saw wally or however old i was when i saw wally and i still like I, did you I, dig it i did dig it i, I dug wally okay. I, I was fucking with wally um but this is gonna be the most schizophrenic fucking thumbnail you've had so oh much. hell yeah you, you swear get to it. God. <laughs> we got fucking wally we got fucking um <laughs> donnie darko whatever anyway but like i think um in the sense that the infantilization of culture i i think a thing i'm very paranoid of is preconception um because i feel like for example like to, to use a horror example hereditary is a film that i i don't have I got nothing out of it because all it does is play off preconceptions of what's supposed to be taken seriously now, like th this sort of um, grieving plot in it, and um, this—it's it, really just a haunted house ride. And in that way, it's kinda, it kind of—it succeeds in its, in its way of escapism. But I—I I just thought the reason, like, I'd seen it placed on like best of the decade lists, and I don't see what made it that exceptional in that way. And so, in that way. The hereditary played to these preconceptions, whereas kids' movies cannot play off these preconceptions of importance, I don't think, because they're playing to people who don't have any preconceptions, which is children. But, but I mean, that's to talk in a very broad sense, and maybe a movie like I mean, Soul does I, play off preconceptions, so I don't know. I mean, I, I wish Soul directly plays off the preconceptions of an afterlife. I mean, I don't well, think kids I mean, are like idiotic. Really like, that's a really. 
I mean, it uses that as a mechanism to, to be a metaphor for certain things. But again, like... But what makes Soul, like, more complicated than Avengers Endgame? I don't see any more complication there. Uh, but Because uh, I can see Avengers Endgame and learn nothing about my life, and, and it would cause no introspection, <laughs> because none of the characters are grounded in reality. Whereas Soul has characters where he... Uh, I mean, they're reduced to the most basic level. It's like, he, he has to choose between... A, t a teaching life where he inspires people and a, and a life of artistry which is more s self-satisfying and just the, 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 the way these people kind of interact is... So um, like then, then, then where are you left when the film that is made for a more adult audience has less sophistication than the one that you claim is made for children? I, I think the opposite would be true. Well, so what makes you think Avengers Endgame has more nuanced themes than Soul? I mean, I was saying it, it had the same amount. Oh, okay, but like, but like, I would argue that I learned less about my life from Hereditary than I did from Soul. I mean, that's fair. I mean, I don't think that most artists trying to teach you something about life. I mean, that's like that's like a really crazy thing. Like, if it, imagine the egotism on someone. I mean, they they exist, and sometimes they're really good at teaching you things about life. But most of the time, if someone wants to teach you a life story, they're kind of just a swindler. They're kind oh, of a yeah. con artist. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. But I'm saying, like, regardless of intent, it resulted in um, a level of introspection on my part that I had a more nuanced, nuanced thought about it. You know what I mean? Well, I can't, I can't speak about you, like, personally, but I can tell that so many people got so many things out of, like, those Avengers films from the, from the billionaire messiah complexes within them that we had a whole Trump presidency within this. Like, I think we saw very real effects of believing uh, in, like, an anti-governmental vigilante justice force. Like, I think we saw that. Mm -hmm. um, um, like, I think I, those things have real effects. Yeah, but I, I'm talking about... I, I can't I, speak specifically about soul. I saw it once. Um, mm -hmm. I just I just think... Um, I just feel like it's, like, not cool to, to admit that something like soul can have... And that's the thing. This is something I talk about in the first episode a lot. I can't think on... Um, how the Avengers series might have influenced or reflected the circumstances that led to the Trump presidency, because I just can't think on those levels. Because, again, I think we are um, basically kind of opposed people in that way. Because I, and this is very, like, kind of egotistical. I can only think on the level of me as an individual, and I can only think at the level on others as them as individuals. Like, if I'm talking to someone one-on-one, -on -one, I can see their circumstances, the, the, their complexes and all that, if I were to look hard enough and had that sensitivity to it. Um, and then I could be like, oh, well, maybe to help with your life, you could try this X, Y, or Z, or not even say it, just think these things. But in terms of, like, a mass of people, like, like the United States, I couldn't say what policies or um, cultural directions this, the country can move in, because to me, there's just so many variables and all these things, and I, at the end of the day, I just don't care. Yes, but you would assume that, that uh, like, major events, and these can be blockbuster events, too, have, like, real life reflections and expressions like art creates art art creates you know art imitating life imitating art mm -hmm. yeah no I, absolutely and like and that's like a that's like an undeniable thing it's just not a, something i can think of you know like um it doesn't oh, no. every me. time i do i'm like overstepping my abilities it's yeah. just as fun to think of that way you know what i'm saying yeah like so, so in that sense i kind of just remove all that anxiety and instead just focus on what do I want to think about in my life and uh, these certain things? And in a way, a work like Soul is more inspiring to me and has provoked more thought in me than something like Hereditary. And so then why should I be more inclined to treat Hereditary as a more adult work? Hey, 
if you've noticed, I haven't taken any issue with you not digging Hereditary. I, I, I think mm. I liked it. I'm not the best defense of Ari Aster in the world. He's mm. got a lot of problems. But <laughs> um, why did you like it more than Hereditary? I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, if you're going to view anything selfishly, I wouldn't view a kid's film that way. I mean, I would view it as like, would you show your kids that movie? Would you show a family that movie? Because, I mean... If, if the message really spoke to you, I mean, there's better ways to get that message out. Hereditary's messaging wasn't even a message. It was just an experience, some visceral fucking thing. Mm, um, from what I remember, like, saw it once. Yeah, yeah. But I still feel like, you know, I have friends who talked about, like, the beheading scene in Hereditary being the most horrifying thing they saw in a movie. And when uh, I saw it, I thought it was awful. Like, I thought it was very poorly edited as a way to build suspense. Although there are mm. other sequences I think are effectively edited. But what I mean by that is that people took the idea of the scene and because of the context the movie was in, because of all these other things, they suddenly built the scene up to be this cool thing when it wasn't. And, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of a weird example. It's getting away from what I mean. What this I mean feels is, like you bringing up uncut gems with that 2001 thing right now. I'm like, wait, how is it my brain is trying to move in between hereditary and soul and back and forth? <laughs> and I'm like, how the fuck? Okay, I I'm here for the ride. It's just... God, I wish I saw either of these movies more than once. Um, well, that's fine. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. to like, I'm, I'm using them more as like abstract concepts. Where I'm just mad at the notion that a kids' film is automatically lesser than an A24 film. Even well, though... I think that's where my argument is: is that it's not a kids' film. <laughs> like, I but, think but, it's like, made for an infantilized I... audience. Man. But like, that's the thing. I can't think for all kids. But I can think about. I would, if we were having this argument in 2007, we'd probably be saying the same thing about Ratatouille. It's like, would kids like Ratatouille? Would kids get the answer? Yes, ego? they would like Ratatouille. You know what doesn't happen to that fucking rat? I've never seen the movie, but I can guarantee he doesn't die and then have to, like, figure out how to live his life moralistically to, like, have a different go at it. Like, I'm sure it's just about a rat making food. But it's not just about that, though. Like, there's this... Really... I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, but I'm just saying, but that's the preconception that I'm fighting against, is that you're thinking it's that because of the concept... I'm trying to think of like a, a, a kind of something I took umbrage with before where you, you said, um, here's a better example. You said mm -hmm. Evangelion was a very simplistic show where the, like, from what I remember, you focused on the central metaphor of the Avas, like the mechs, being a kind of defense mechanism that represented like people's distances from each other. And you said that was a very simplistic thing and that's why anime in that sense is a lesser form of art. <laughs> I did. <laughs> But that, again, I no, hate anime. <laughs> and that's fine, that's fine. I'm just saying that Evangelion is a show that, like, I've obviously hugely connected to. Like, I've spent hundreds of hours. I went through frame by oh, frame yeah. for that entire People show. People I respect fucking love it. <laughs> and I'm just saying, that is a nuanced show. And that's not even, I mean, that's not even a kid's show. Like, the, the, the near the end of that show, it gets, like, undeniably, not even, like, subtextually, very introspective and very, about themes about alienation, all these... Um, like about human connections and all this that are incredibly nuanced and stuff like that So I totally understand your base Disagreements with that medium and all that and like I said like and I would say if there are probably horror movies that have a great deal That I just can't get behind like I would assume maybe something like haunting on a hill house, which looks like a very um, Nuanced show I could never watch it. It's just because it's not for me I just worry that to be that dismissive of things Can just it puts you in a bad spot. I guess I mean, I'm, there's not that there isn't value in kids' movies, but the only people I see like championing and really learning from a fucking simplistic kids' message is full-grown adults. Like, I feel like that's a weird thing. Yeah, 
But then again, Honestly, I don't feel like people really I, I, learn wait, for, from for, for your listeners, that video where I say that shit, I believe I was drunk. Um, yeah, I, I believe were. I also earlier said that like Kurosawa was terrible. Yeah, yeah you went off. It was so funny when you got to Ron and you're like, shit movie, next question. And I haven't seen Ron, I just thought that was so funny. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was on some other shit that day. That's fine. <laughs> so, like, I don't like anime, but I'm sure whatever I said wasn't meant to be as uh, impassioned as it might have sounded there. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'm, like, I was just trying to call it a preconception there. Um... Oh, no, it is a preconception for sure, but, like, just because it's a preconception doesn't mean I'm not, like on the right track maybe anime is a whole different discussion mm-hmm. than whether or not disney as a corporation is infantilizing people I, I i think the biggest thing is that you mentioned that people are learning messages from children's movies which mm-hmm. i'm not entirely sure because the type of people that would engage with those things more go into it and don't want their beliefs questioned you know what i mean like they want these i mean that, that's why universal truths maybe are something to be kind of worried about because something being a universal truth can easily be used to exploit people and just perpetrate mm-hmm. things that they're like they're like oh i agree with this and then sneak in shit that um can, can be uh, encouraged complacency and other bad things that corporations can want but are not in the interest of the individual but um no i, I mean if we want to say that like these lessons are insincere i would completely probably agree there mm-hmm. it's just um yeah and that's probably that's probably my my problem um, <laughs> with me as a person is that. Oh, and if you want to call hereditary insincere, I would agree with you. I just think mm. that that probably works in the films like men. Like it didn't work for Midsummer for me. I thought that was overcomposed and like pretty self masturbatory. But for mm. some reason, in Hereditary, it was uh, more accessible or digestible. But it's a very insincere film. But being insincere also doesn't make something like terrible. Like mm. I like a lot of kids' movies too. But yeah, and I think I think that's my problem is that. Um... I guess I just like animation, and I like the, the the feeling those movies gave me. And then I I probably fell for the trap of it was an easy out of like here's a universal truth that's unquestionable. Um, you have not, you are now justified for liking this movie. Now we can do whatever we want to you. So I don't know. I'll have to do more thinking about that because I I enjoyed the experience of watching the film. I thought it had all these things I found um entrancing, and then I was like. Oh, it's got a universal truth. Checks the articulating insight box, and I'm off. So, I should think more about when I whether I support corporate, uh, corporately produced product or not. I mean, I don't know if there's like a huge issue with like supporting. It's just about recognizing that it's there, because then, like, if we say infantilizing culture, well, that sounds negative, but like. Mm-hmm. Our times are like really fucked up and I'm not going like soul came out during the pandemic, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not going to hold anything against anybody who needed the movie soul. Yeah. No matter what your age is in December of the pandemic, like yeah. I'm not going to hold it against you. We all need that. Mm-hmm. You know, just like, like, I don't know, like there's that fucking, I hated the Mitchells versus the machines. It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen, but like that movie is like shaming all of the, like it came out now and it's, it looks like it's just shaming a culture of having to stay inside and be attached to their phones to keep up with their loved ones. And like the bad timing, bad timing. Let's wait a little bit. Yeah. But, but no, I'm not, I would never shame anyone for like liking soul when it came out. It's just um, I always I had issues with other Pixar movies like these. Like they're deeply manipulated. Like the first, the opening of Up is like the most manipulative trash I've ever seen. Like yeah. like unearned fucking like emotionality, mm-hmm. and uh, like Inside Out. I'm not sure is the 
just so much of it. I don't know. Pixar is like it's difficult to speak about these fucking huge corporations well, and the and movies they put out because like I, I do support it though. Like I, I've been covering like Scream is not an indie film, you know. Mm. Like Urban Legend is not an indie film. I've been covering studio projects, but it's just interesting to see what they deem necessary to. Yeah, and I think again, like that's why I brought this up in the first place was that you, you're so fascinated in these studio horror movies, and I, I'm so mm-hmm. and I, like I'm so interested in these studio kids movies, and I feel like the, they're just kind of flip sides of the same coin, and we both look for something that's kind of core to our interest in art in them, which is probably because both those films are to fulfill a large niche of the population that has a kernel of that kind of interest we have. You know, yeah, um, and then the more fascinating that. thing than just me or Justin saying that like ki- uh, these kids' movies seem to be made for adults is to figure out why adults like feel like they're kids, like like find them more interesting. Um, but like, what would be better than than Justin and I just saying, you know, like grow up, get good, or some bullshit is like to just figure out why this is even like a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that would be more interesting. It would be more like uh, productive, conducive to to a dialogue rather than just act like we're too cool for it. Yeah, um, it's just like that is far beyond my my scope. <laughs> oh no, absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, and I had to dig pretty deep for you to go off like that, from what I can tell. So I mean, you're not like championing these beliefs and saying like if you like kids movies, fuck you, like type thing. So like, no, that, that, that's good. Um, but what I was thinking you're like, what if I told you I like soul? What if I told you I like soul more than hereditary? What if I told you you're full of shit, Zach? <laughs> like, like, okay. I'm trying. I'm trying to be the the cool. I'm trying to be like the Howard Stern of movie podcasts. I'm, I'm calling what you. What about out. this quote from your three year old or two year old letterboxed fucking video about <laughs> Neon Genesis Evangelion? Okay. Well, I bring it up because that's just something that's like so big to me, and I just want to because like that's the big thing. I just want to talk about like preconceptions, and that's what I bring about a lot in the first episode is that. Um, and even we talk about here, not every fucking movie discussion has to be about the newest A24 movie or about Bergman or about Antonioni. We can talk about dumb shit because yes. everyone eats, like, everyone eats dumb shit. Everyone engages with dumb shit. Yeah, like, sometimes we just, like, uh, over, we, we think that something's beneath us or something's dumb. And then <laughs> we don't even pay attention or engage with it. But that's far more interesting to me because so, if you could put a weird objective value on mm-hmm. on a product, right? It's about how many people use it and seem to benefit from it yeah. or claim that they do. And if you could view soul as a product, maybe not art, but a product, it doesn't matter. So many people latched onto it. And I think a large part is the pandemic, but there's a huge other part that like, if you refuse to engage with it, then you don't actually like understand it like completely or fully. Like, like what are people getting from it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, on on a whole, I think I think you're different. You're you're a little un- unique in a certain sense. I think a lot of people don't uh, don't have the bedrock or the foundation that that you do entering mm-hmm. into a movie like Soul and do watch it sincerely, like do watch it genuinely and and believe in this strange messaging that they're getting. I think the messaging of the film was kind of strange, but like strange messaging from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then yeah. my argument has to be that, like, it's Soul's message. Is it wrong? Is it invalid? Is it is it harmful to put out there? No. No. Right? No. It's yeah. like, live a full life. <laughs> yeah. What am I going to tell you not to? Yeah. No, no, <laughs> like, that's a good point. Well, that's why, like, I love how we just chose the path of the hardest thing to talk about. Because it's easy to talk about, like, 
Kubrick's I could have just come on here and been like, my first criterion, let me tell you. <laughs> because it's so easy to talk about those things because it's like it's reduced to one person. It's like Antonioni had these ideas. He put them out in the movie. We can talk about And no one's going to argue. Yeah. No one will argue. Because these are facts. Like These are like things that are like in the film. It has thesis. It's a static being film, although a lot of them aren't. But I mean, like in the sense that like, we're talking yeah. about it as a static being object. But in a way, these products are dynamic becoming in the sense that they mean so many fucking things because th they're these huge things made by a thousand people with a thousand ideas and are engaged with by a thousand people with a thousand different ideas of how to engage with it so what the fuck do we talk about well see that's that's where it gets difficult me like at the very beginning like i don't know what the fuck art is and i don't know if it matters mm -hmm. because at the end of the day you have so many hands in the pot now or like a like, film is like like unrecognizable to me tv is unrecognizable to me mm. it, it means so many things to so many different people and it's also got so many different goals and responsibilities mm -hmm. like yeah. it's impossible to parse mm -hmm. um tough. but we've picked the most fringiest parts to try to parse and that's our fault but, but you know what i mean someone's got to do it it's a tough job but you know, you know someone's got to do it <laughs> but anyway um you mentioned that Apocalypse Now is the last kind of breath of creativity Coppola had. And I just wonder, what do you take umbrage with of his post-Apocalypse Now works? Um, that the only good thing is Coda, that he threw out his artistic back and went, like, morally and financially bankrupt. But so what, what's morally bankrupt about, like, Rumblefish or One from the Heart? I like The Outsiders. Let me put that out there. Though. Okay. Okay. The Outsider is very interesting. The Outsiders is like Coppola doing his fucking um, Selznick gone with the wind bullshit. Like that, 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 that's fun. That's good. Well, of I, course... It feels like a completely different filmmaker, a completely different author. And it doesn't, I don't know what happened to him in the 70s. I'm not going to get like mystical or metaphysical, but how does one motherfucker do like the Godfather's one and two, the conversation in Apocalypse Now in the fucking decade? Well, I like, would argue... It's Though, unreasonable to expect the career to be that good. Yeah, yeah, sure. But my favorite Coppola works are his 80s stuff. Like, One from the Heart is, like, my second favorite movie. And Rumble... Well, second favorite movie, what the fuck does that mean? I mean, it's the movie that's second in my letterbox favorites, whatever. Um, and, and, and Rumblefish, I, I think, is fantastic. And I think that his 70s stuff, while, like, some of the best shit ever, like, obviously, is less representative of him as a person because if you look at Rain People, that was, like his big movie for him and that has nothing in common with his 70s stuff i would say besides the conversation which has more shades of it but um i would say the 70s films are him trying to speak to more universal things whereas like his 80s stuff and beyond like especially rumblefish tetro and rain people are all like those are the coppola movies to me um even if they're m maybe like not traditionally as good as the 70s stuff did you catch uh, coda this year no i didn't i've never seen godfather part three and i have a feeling that would, if I'd seen that, that would be what would sully my views on Coppola. I have a feeling. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Well, I mean, I, I did not like part three, but I did Coda earlier this year or last, whatever. Mm. Whenever it came out, it was mm. really good. Oh, it was really it was good. Really okay. Good. I thought you were going to show. I didn't it catch was really video. good. But like watch Coda instead of the regular part three. I don't know. Just a few fucking differences like made a world of change. Mm-hmm. But that's part of what makes Apocalypse Now so interesting to me. I think I'm watching someone who will never be at this level again. Uh, it does sound deeply contrarian of you to say that One from the Heart is... Have you seen it, though? Have you seen One from the Heart? It's been a while, but there, I, there's a reason I don't remember much of it. But it's the most beautiful, like, crazy film ever. And if you watch the documentary behind the making of his film, he wanted to make cinema 
for the director again. Like, he wanted to continue New Hollywood in an even better way. Because with Zoetrope Studios, what he planned to do was to have a full, like, like any directors, like, you know, that, that he had, along with, like, crew and cast on staff, like, 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 on contract and all this, and just full creative freedom and just give money to whoever whoever wanted it. And it was all riding off the success of One from the Heart, but because One from the Heart bombed, um, it kind of killed that idea. But with One from the Heart, it's this crazy ambitious film. Like, there are cuts that don't even exist. Like, he would use invisible walls with lights behind them to, to, do, to do crazy things oh, yeah. and stuff. But, like, with, um... But, like, beyond all that crazy technical stuff, there is just a really pure aesthetic joy and, like, just passion behind that film in every frame. Like, there's crazy, crazy shit that's never been done again in that movie. I gotta see it again, based on your recommendation here. I just never heard anyone speak so highly of it before. What it's are your feelings on Jack? Okay. Jack is because one from the heart bombed. He, I mean, one from the heart bombed so bad. Like he he literally did like a deal with the devil and lost. Like what happened was he, okay in the documentary. It's like this crazy like almost like if I was a conspiracy theorist, I'd be like, there's something weird happening here. Where there's this random like masked guy or not even masked like just this crazy mysterious man who shows up and says he was this billionaire from Canada who gave Coppola all the money for the Zoetrope Studios, the one from the heart and all that on the condition that he would get his investment back. And then when One From The Heart didn't didn't do anything, he he just absorbed everything and put Coppola in debt that he's still trying to recover from. He's literally, like, yeah. he's still, like, eternally in debt. So that explains, like, Jack, the Rainmaker, probably even, like, Dracula, which still seems interesting yeah. and all that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I can't justify those films. And in the same way, I mean, The Outsiders are probably... Like I, I, mean, hey, I, I can hardly, I can't really justify his pre-seventies work like either. Like I think I'm just speaking very specifically. Oh, have you seen the rain like I can't talk about the terror and shit. Oh yeah, well I don't know. I mean those were clearly like studio stuff too. But I mean like the rain people is a really sensitive, beautiful movie. Like that that film has so much cool shit in it, and it's like transcendent. And there's a lot of stuff in that movie that like somehow like petered down. And there's a lot of movies that in a weird way pay homage to it. But anyway. What was I just gonna say about? I, I do like I do like the guy a lot. I just um, I I just think there's I, just such like an uh, there's a, for me there's just such a noticeable like a huge difference like a disparity in quality and vision. But like, you know I, what? I, I have to watch one from the heart again. But not I even one from that. the heart because you know in hindsight but, I don't know how you would relate to one from the heart because I've, I'm like a cheesy person. Even Rumblefish is like so overcomposed though. Like even one uh, Rumblefish is so overcomposed. It's like everything I hated about the outsiders for an hour and a half that's so weird because like rumblefish was his film like the outsiders was his concession to the studio so he could make rumblefish and to me rumblefish is one of the most beautiful like truthful movies because th that whole movie is about his relationship with his brother that he later um and his father elaborated on or was it his brother i forget he uses a surrogate for his family relations and um he does it again in tetra which i think is another great film but uh with with, I don't know, with coppola I would highly suggest you give his later films a second shot, even though, I mean, I guess if they're not your sensibility, not your sensibility, I don't care. But I would just say that um, I think the way that the new Hollywood era kind of died out is kind of suspect to me because it was right around the time Empire Strikes Back was hugely successful. Suddenly we saw a shift towards these company-led franchise vehicles. And right, um, right around this time, Stardust Memories, Heaven's Gate, um, One from the Heart, 
I'm, like, I'm sure there's a ton of like Ishtar even, ton of other examples of just press assassination of these things. So whether it's just the culture getting fed up with this style of filmmaking, or maybe something more sinister in the corporations leading these things, I think that's, that's an interesting concept. I think that's an interesting one too. One worth looking into for sure. I never, I never play, connected all the dots before. But I don't know. I mean, it's all just speculation. So I don't know. I'm just saying, like, um... I'm cool with wild speculation. That's what I do. <laughs> That's what we all do. I think you're doing really well. <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm fucking hijacking this episode. I feel so bad. I should just. <laughs> oh. Oh you... no! I like having conversations. That's what most of my stuff is. That's good. That's good. Just good discussions, good discourse, I guess. <laughs> well, anyway, is there anything you've been engaging with recently that you feel compelled to talk about? Any albums, movies, anything, paintings? No. <laughs> no. Um, I've been like, okay, the thing about like having a YouTube channel is eventually most of what you engage with is like public. Mm. Um, I've been, all, all the most recent videos are what I've been watching. Mm. Um, that's it. Mm -hmm. uh same old shtick we got some uh you know videos on gossip and go and scream too and in the mouth of madness did some carpenter shit with jacob oh yeah recently. yeah do you have a favorite carpenter do you think or like anyone that yeah. you feel particularly inclined towards i mean halloween would be my number one and then escape mm -hmm. from new york they'd probably jockey for position honestly but even halloween one isn't my favorite halloween movie <laughs> i like carpenter a lot it's just uh not as much as a lot of fucking people do. And I love that he's a legend. Mm. I mean, I think he deserves it in his B-movie way. It's just, um, yeah, I don't know where to go from yeah, there. No, that's well, then, you know, actually, the one horror director I got hyper into for a period is a Toby Hooper. Hey, I, yeah, yeah. Well, I can I, definitely I, tell you my, my three favorite horror films of all time are uh, In No Order Like Scream, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Dawn of the Dead. Hell yeah. Um, Toby Hooper's insane. I, mean, uh, I do feel awkward that it, when you give him more money, he's less good. <laughs> like, I feel weird about about it, but, yeah. like, there's something about him on a shoestring budget that's like, oh, my God, how the fuck did you even do this? Have you seen Spontaneous Combustion? I have not. Bro, that shit is insane. That's good? It is insane. It's so good. And that's another example. Like, it's him on, like, a, t a TV movie budget making the craziest, like, in terms of, like, you know, we talk about, like, reflecting kind of zeitgeist and stuff. It's this weird, like, 50s nuclear paranoia in the 90s type thing. It just explosions. The most emotive, crazy movie. I, I, oh, man, you really gotta yeah. check it out. No, absolutely. Like, uh, like Jacob is on my channel a lot. He's a huge, like, Hooper, Hooper fan, Hooper mm -hmm. acolyte. Um, there's a bunch of ones I haven't seen. Like, I think he was going to make me watch, like, Funhouse is one, oh, right? Oh, dude, I think you dig Funhouse. Funhouse is really good. I've never seen it, so he wanted me to do that. Like, I've seen, um, like, Life Force, TCM2, <laughs> and, like, Dance of the Dead, <laughs> Salem's Lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, which I, I actually like Salem's Lot, and I saw Poltergeist as well. But isn't there like a whole thing with um, like, is it really directed by him or is it Spielberg? Mm. Isn't that like a whole yeah. argument? And I'm I'm still in the camp that I think that everyone really involved in the project has said it's Hooper's vision mainly, with Spielberg just doing some like side bits. Um, so right. I, I believe it's him, although it does have a Spielberg flair. None of his other films do. So I mean, take that for what it's worth. No, absolutely. I mean, I really dug Salem's Lot and uh, yeah, the original Texas Chainsaw a lot. I'm waiting to get Hooper pilled like 
yeah, I've seen Eaton Alive. And I'm waiting to get Hooper pilled. Jacob's going to Hooper pill me, I think. Hell yeah. And I'll be on board. Like, right now, it's just all been about, like, Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven. Uh, <laughs> it's really, like, I had to but... Google Kevin Williamson. I thought I knew, like, everyone. Then you kept bringing up Kevin Williamson. I was like, who the fuck? Who the fuck is Kevin Williamson? I'm normalizing bringing him up in kind of like I've, I've had like Justin insert his name when like referencing 90s movies like in videos I see people on Twitter who I know watch my channel go I need a Kevin Williamson fix I'm like there we go there we go normalize it that's funny. so like oh he did like um he did scream um he did what else what else did he do he did Scream, Dawson's Creek, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Halloween H2O, The Vampire Diaries, which no one knows he did. <laughs> <laughs> he did The Faculty, he did Teaching Mrs. Tingle. Um, I think he does, like, I, I, the guy invents youth culture for, like, every generation he's in. And he's just this <laughs> unseen person in the lurking in the background. <laughs> the man behind the curtain, Kevin Williams. Yep. Oh, and he did Scream 2 and Scream 4. Oh, damn. But he's busy. He is busy, <laughs> and I'm normalizing, making him. Into, I wanted to go important names: Quentin Tarantino, comma Kevin Williamson. <laughs> I will not rest. Well, you know something kind of interesting. I thought um, that well, you, you brought up those kind of postmodern names in a video. Um, you brought up Josh Whedon, and I was thinking, mm -hmm. I, I was wondering what your take is on the fact that now he's become like the superhero guy. Um, well, he always kind of was. Well, my take on him being the superhero guy is um, the Avengers is pretty like uninspired. Obviously, Justice League was uninspired, but Age of Ultron's like inspired, and it's gonna. I mean, Joss Whedon should probably sound like a creep. I love him, but he's a creep. Yeah. Um, Age of Ultron is like his actual auteur Marvel movie, and it's all because <laughs> it's about like it's essentially about Scarlet Witch and her fucking twin brother. It's about another teenage superhero. Like that's all his great works are about are teenage superhero girls. <laughs> um, so like he's always been like that from Buffy to Firefly was really about fucking um, the, the, fuck the girl. River. Yeah, about River being a, a secret superhero. Mm -hmm. But, like, the thing is, his his work is so, like, existentialist, too, that there's, like, so much fucking, um, like, an episode of Buffy called The Body yeah. is easily one of the best directed things, like, I, I've, I've seen, maybe. Like, especially for television. Like, holy fucking shit, Joss. That's intense. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen that kind of expression of trauma and immediate grief and loss, like in some of the most impenetrable art house films. Like he did something really incredible there. He obviously has the talent and the vision. Um, but there's something so existential about him. Like what makes Firefly so interesting is like his fixation on River and River's concept of objects in that Sartrean way of like, what, like nausea has that whole scene where um, the main character is like on a, on a bus and sees like a, a bench and then starts like getting existentially nauseous because he sees each thing as it's like individual like objects like removed from a meaning and then nothing has any meaning. And that's like how river like interacts with the world. Like a gun isn't a gun. It's like a flower, but a flower is meaningless. Like this whole ship is meaningless, but it has all this sense of meaning. Like he gets really complicated. He's more existential than postmodern, but since he was in that fucking wave mm. of uh have you heard of Kevin Williamson? Huge guy. He was in a wave with like Kevin Williamson in them. So um, he, I, I kind of group him in uh, pretty easily, especially since like Buffy and Firefly like do a little bit of deconstruction of either like B movie or like the Western. Like there's a little bit of deconstructionist like flair in there, but uh, it's mostly 
and also it deconstructs a bit of the tropes too mm. like there's a lot of postmodern art in it but philosophically if anything joss whedon is existential to to an almost nihilistic degree yeah that's so um, man that's cr- out of all the things i expect when starting this podcast Getting a legitimately nuanced Joss Whedon auteurship discussion was not one, and like because like because I, I always thought Joss Whedon was like the lowest of the low because I mean I just saw the Avengers movies I was just I got nothing out of them I was like whatever and then whoever I talked to like who was a Joss Whedon fan I was like oh bro his movies are epic they're like the like they break the fourth wall that's crazy and like and shit like that I was just like oh my god that's gross and, but like. You hit through that lens. You genuinely made him like sound like an interesting figure. So that's great. And I remember I used to read about the the body that episode and just think about like that's a crazy idea to do on a teen TV show. Like that is oh, freaky. Yeah. It was insanely done. And like even his lesser work. Like we have to remember the Joss Whedon now. Mm-hmm. Creep or no creep, he's a fucking creep. Mm-hmm. And maybe he should stop working. But he was a genius once. Joss Whedon now is like twenty something years past his prime. Like it's unreasonable to like judge his Justice League by the work he was doing in his mid twenties on like Buffy. Mm-hmm. Like he was a different person then. He was energetic and like full of something he had to convey. So yeah. it's like un you know, it's just unfair to do. Yeah. It's not a lesser known stuff, like Dollhouse was this show that was only around for like two seasons with Eliza Dushku in it. Like he made it after Firefly failed, so he made another failed show instead, I guess, with his logic. <laughs> um but Dollhouse is all about the concept of identity. Like on the surface, it's it's a pervy little Joss Whedon show about like these these people who have like like no identity and they get like implanted new ones and they're mostly like sexual things that they have to do. But the whole point of the show is like the concept of like what even makes up an identity. Like who like who even are you? Like are you an invention? Are you what you invent yourself to be? It's always deeply existentialist, no matter what he does, and that's why Age of Ultron is the only probably the only auteur made like marvel movie but even then we'd have to assume studio heads had a lot to do with it but there's a reason he wasn't asked back (laughs) uh because like he was he's deeply obsessed with these two fucking characters and by the way superficially people don't point this out and i don't (laughs) marvel color theory but joss whedon like always like highlights something by by a color too it's just a fun little like aesthetic that he does yeah and quicksilver being blue and scarlet witch being red um you mash blue and red together you get purple which is at like the heart of the movie as well it's about hawkeye just like trying to like come to terms with like having a child or the, the 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 concept of family and like how that fits into his um unreasonable lifestyle as a vigilante or something even names his kid after the quicksilver character because you mash them together and you get the heart of the movie i'm like okay this movie's like fine this movie's good (laughs) i don't see what the issue is that's so interesting man man that's crazy i really wouldn't have thought of that Someone has to. Yeah, no, um, and I'm so glad. Well, we're like, who the fuck's gonna bring up Dollhouse in a conversation? Like, that's so cool that you're into that. Again, like, I, I feel bad. I just can't contribute because I just have no fucking idea because that's just never anything I've delved into. But like, that is that is a really cool insight. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy we we went on the Joss Whedon discussion. Is something we need to do. He's a hard person to do though. Like, when I do like Kevin Williamson, I always like to mention like how fucking good he is and stuff. It's difficult to do that with Joss. I think you said something about like problematic people once, like, um, or at least I vaguely remember you saying it on one of your earlier episodes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
can Joss stop being a fuck up for once so I can like say something nice about him without mm -hmm. having to be like, by the way, total creep and apparently terrible to work with. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like, but I mean, obviously, that, that, that's a tougher subject, but. Yeah, and I mean, again, like, and that's the way I kind of just remove myself from that anxiety by just being like, I'm just going to look at the work. And if the work accomplishes something, that, that's, that's what I'm focused on, and that'll, that'll outlive least... the creep. Hopefully. Joss is a great example of like sometimes the opposite can happen. Like uh, by by some by some of the uh, the people's perspectives, like uh, for, some people did not have a very good time filming Buffy and felt objectified and body shamed or, or something like that mm -hmm. working on the show. And uh, those memories or those testimonies are like totally fucking valid. Like Charisma Carpenter said it, and she's she's a queen. I will listen to her. Mm -hmm. But somehow Buffy turned out to be a wonderful show, and so did Angel. Like, both of those shows turned out to be well, and apparently it was a hostile work environment the whole time. Mm -hmm. But then you get the opposite, too. Like, a, like Justice League is not just a bad movie uh, because of all the um, out, outside whatever. Yeah. There's all the circumstances around having to make it. It was apparently a bad movie because most of the actors didn't feel respected. Mm -hmm. And it was a hostile work environment and possibly even, like, a, a racist one. I'm not even sure. Mm -hmm. I just... Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that, I mean, if, if the work trans... Because the thing is also, I think a big thing we have to take into account is that this is all, like, second and third-hand information. We don't know what's been twisted. I mean, I don't know. But, like, I, even if if, if this all, all this stuff is true, does it give me a gut kind of revulsion to the work, knowing it's birthed in that sort of place? Sure, but if I learned something from it, then that's something that I can internalize, and that's what I have to focus on at the end of the day is Absolutely. what I think. Um, hey, we can't all be perfect like a, uh, let's pull a name out of it, like a Kevin Williamson. We can't all be, like, <laughs> flawless fucking people. Exactly. You're like Kevin Williamson, exactly. <laughs> just, see it... just normalize him in the best possible way. That's the way to do it. Oh, oh it's God. the best way to fucking parachute out of a Joss Whedon discussion. You go, have you seen Dawson's Creek? Bye. And then you go. <laughs> so. Oh, my God. But, um. Um, I, I'm I'm thrilled that I find like act like cinephiles out there who are into like the kind of seemingly it's not ironic it's post ironic I'm being very sincere and I love like Dawson's Creek and all these mm -hmm. things but I'm finding actual cinephiles out there who love Lenote as much as they love Dawson's Creek like there are people like this yeah exactly um, it's really cool to see and I'm glad I can find people who love Laventure as much as they love Soul so that's really what I'm looking out here for. <laughs> You know, same message at the end of the day, probably. <laughs> sure, I mean, who knows? You got, um, I mean, I can obviously tell that your music taste is kind of tied to your film taste in terms of, like, pop 90s groups and all this stuff. And that, that is so cool, because I think there's a lot of great, I mean, I, obviously we were talking with Richard Kelly earlier, there's a great, like, nuggets of music hidden in, like, this trash 90s pop culture. And, I mean, I guess I'm more, like, 2000s i have a friend who like throws all this like 2000s like franz ferdinand and like even a bit of, like the killers and like um like the strokes and like like throws me like weird deep cuts that like no one cares about from their stuff and i'm just like that's actually really good i'm just like i don't know i yeah. just want to tell you i can relate to that kind of sentiment well it's cool because i like my, my favorite bands are probably like uh, like sonic youth and mm -hmm. like um like Japanther, things like that. Um like I feel in the nineties they started to deconstruct the notion of a rock band and a rock star to yeah. where you get, you know, like like Kurt Cobain like destroying himself mm -hmm. in public eye. Well, yeah. Um well, and, the guy from and then you had to get too. bands like 
like the the bands, like the Strokes and the White Stripes, who had a lot more in, co- in common with uh, Rolling Stones than they did with like the Pixies. Yeah. Like, um, but you have to get to that place where you deconstruct everything down to its base essentials, and then you you definitely have to build it up, and you have to build it up with like a new sincerity, mm-hmm. which is something that I don't. Because the postmodernists did such a good job with film and with music of like breaking everything down. And I think music bounced back with a new sincerity. I think the strokes are very sincere and they're telling me about what they did last night. Or like, <laughs> I believe Jack White has a seven nation army. Fine. Cool. I believe you. It sounds sincere. Yeah. Um, we haven't bounced back from like Pulp Fiction, man. I, I really don't think so. Like we haven't built upon anything. It's just deconstructed everything down to its base essentials. And it's just, what do you build on top of that? And like film to me is just lacking that resolve. Yeah. Um, well, outside a... of a very few, like I could point out a few, like I think Sofia Coppola has done it like once or twice, like b- tried to build upon something that was broken, but mm-hmm. difficult to actually make it a tenable place. I I I don't know how to talk in those terms. That's a really interesting way to bring it up, though. Um, But this might be just a generational thing, like where I'm like you know quite a bit younger than you, old ass man. Get out of here! But like I I just grew up in that new sincerity stuff, and so maybe maybe even that's the key as to why I'm more accepting of children's films than a horror film, you know? And maybe it's because of this, like children's films are this like. Um, we're talking to you at this base level. We we have nothing to hide, so they say. And um, right. and, and and I don't and I I get more turned off when things feel the need to deconstruct things. And I feel like and that's just a, a base notion. That, that goes to it. Yeah, like Hereditary is very sardonic. Hereditary is very insincere and ironic, like mm-hmm. on purpose. But those might feel like outdated to you because those are the tools that they use in the nineties. Yeah. It should be like passe now. Yeah. No, that's that's really interesting. Um, and I wonder what stuff like like the Safdie brothers films are pointing towards where now it's like this new level of authenticity where it's like street people, real stunts, real things like cinema verite almost kind of stuff. I wonder if that's going to start becoming moved towards the mainstream with how popular those films have been. I hope it'll be like a Rossellini situation where it's like not it's not going to be the Safdies who like fucking bring everything back it'll be their pupils it'll be like the antonioni's and the fellini's are like i learned how to do that neorealism but now i'm gonna do my, my own fucking weird thing in the corner here but like you'll be able to see where i learned from you but i'm gonna go do a circus over here and the other dude's gonna go hmm. i don't know depressingly stare at a monica vidi for like three hours <laughs> well and you know here's an interesting idea that i almost feel like that could be this i don't know this this could be a really cringe to bring up because i don't know and i've, I've taken umbrage with his newer stuff but okay both... at this point what would cringe come on <laughs> 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 the, the the soul in Mitchell's versus the machines discourse wasn't enough. We gotta go deeper. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> um, but Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade, I feel like, is a film that's really fascinating because it's a film that's like purely functional in terms of wanting to explore this central character of um of a socially anxious creator, which Bo Burnham feels like we've all turned into with the advent of social media, and um, he just wants to explore how these um. These responsibilities of being in public all the time, all the things that were originally allotted to be actors and like, you know, like people in the public eye are now dispersed to everyone and especially children and how that affects their development. Oh, yeah. That's a wild thing for me. I'm, I actually, we agree. I think eighth grade's amazing. Oh, okay, good. Um, and I think that like, while I was in theaters watching that, I was like, 
I was thrilled that it wasn't nostalgic, right? Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't about me or like me and Bo were like the same age. Like it's yeah. not about us being 14. It's made for like 14 year olds right then, mm-hmm. right then. It was prescient. It, it was meaningful. And it was, it was almost an unselfish film. Like there, there was composure, but it wasn't overcomposed. But as you're saying, like it's trying to like sincerely uh, interact with, with, with the problems um with the issues that kids are facing right now today and Mm. and trying to be very sincere about it and that makes it very endearing and i think endearing too probably yeah no absolutely um and well and i think what you say about not being nostalgic is so important because it's a movie about now not when it when the creator Mm -hmm. or anyone watching it was a kid so like there's no like nostalgic needle drops there's no like early 2000s pop hit played ironically or something and there's nothing that's supposed to be like new generation dumb phone bad type thing it's all about like these are a part of our lives what do we do with them now and like what does this mean for us um exactly no i mean and and that takes so much skill i i I couldn't write something about about the youth of today without some form of nostalgia without some analog for someone in my life yeah well that's like like i mean bo burm like he just and it, it sounds so creepy when I first heard it, but in hindsight, it makes a lot of sense. And he channels it perfectly. Is that he would just go watch like random teenage girls' YouTube channels and like random teenagers' YouTube channels and just be like, "This is crazy!" Like, like these people are out here giving this like unfiltered, real look into their lives, and they don't even know it. They're just doing it because they're just like, "Oh, I gotta have a YouTube channel," and that's that's a really fascinating thing, and that's probably why he get, gets that channels that insight so perfectly into the film. I mean, YouTube's overflowing with some of the, the the most I don't know, like deeply penetrating art like available. Mm-hmm. Um, it's people trying to share, trying to project a version of themselves, a socially acceptable one, or, or a version that they wish would be acceptable, or just a version, or just some just projection for projection's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely understand why Bo Burnham went that route with it. It definitely feels like he did, and it's an incredible first film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like good job for a debut yeah. um a lot of debuts can be like pretty fucking self-centered and i like that there was just restraint especially yeah. from a comedian like that yeah. a person who was used to being on screen the entire time and and that's something that i feel disconnected from with his stand-up specials is that with his stand-up specials i feel like he can never move beyond himself like everything he yeah. does is a way to justify it's like okay, I'm a straight white male comedian, here's why you should take me seriously, but he can't move beyond just appealing to people's preconceptions of why he should be taken seriously to articulate anything meaningful, I think. I, I probably wouldn't disagree, but I would say that that's, it'd be a lot to ask of him to pioneer oh, yeah. um, that medium as well, but I think that's a problem of that medium more so than of the comedian in it. I yeah. think that when you're on a stage by yourself, you'd, you'd, feel, you'd feel foolish to even distract from yourself or even not to try to show the egotism just involved with you by yourself on a stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I guess that's the problem of like me trying to approach it as like him being an artist when there's so many yeah. more factors involved in like the thing is comedy. He has so much potential. So much potential. Oh, absolutely. Like, it's unreal. Well, I mean, he's like, like to me, like he's like one of the directors to watch right now. It's funny because when I was watching your videos, I think your speech is a lot like his, like just the way you talk. I, I just thought that was funny. I've, you talk. Like I've gotten him. that in real life a lot. <laughs> but his interviews are crazy. Like his, he, he, like I remember, I went through a phase where I listened to a ton of Bo Burnham and David Foster Wallace interviews, and they talk about the same <laughs> shit. Like David Foster Wallace is like this revered artist, and Bo Burnham does fucking repeat stuff, and it's like, what the fuck? 
Yep. Is I'd that... be lying if I didn't say that's where I got new sincerity from. I use that a lot now. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've the only... only person who, like, provided an explanation to postmodernism that I find valid is new sincerity. That's what has to come from it, or else it's just nihilism. Huh. Man, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the idea of Foster Wallace I find fascinating, but again, like, I find it hard to, like, engage with those, those greater ideas. Um, but, I mean, I mean that's, that's the guy with ideas. He has some fucking ideas. Yeah. Ugh. Almost an infinite amount. An infinite amount of jest, perhaps. Oh, yeah, that's what I was trying to go towards. <laughs> See, this is the synergy the you get on articulating insight. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, man. Oh, I might be wrapping it up here soon, though. Sure, yeah. No, um, anything you want to plug or any like sort of like um, things you want to rep here? No, but just put my name as your cult boyfriend, though. Don't put Zachary. Oh, for sure, for sure. I'm mean, who yeah. the fuck Zachary? I mean, no, no one cares. But your cult boyfriend—that's that, a figure. <laughs> yeah, or like your cult stepdad. You're like what, like twenty? <laughs> <laughs> I just turned twenty-two, so you know I'm working at it. Uh, Fair enough. Uh, I'm no, I had a good time. I don't really have anything to plug. Yeah. Well, no. Thank you so much for coming out. I mean, I like that it started off with like. So to answer your question, I hate art. Um. <laughs> This <laughs> is like basically. <laughs> but they, yeah, I mean, yeah, that good. was fun. That was fun. That's the yin um, and yang. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, yeah, good stuff. But yeah, yeah. No, thank you so much for your time, and uh, yeah, I won't keep you any longer. Ain't no problem. Have a good one, Zane. You good as well. You. See ya.